Just a quick note before we begin. This episode features adult language and descriptions of violence that you'd expect to hear in a podcast about the mafia. So if you have kids in the room, you may want to listen with headphones. When Anthony Arellata agreed to cooperate, he understood that he needed to tell us everything. Every bad act, every crime he'd ever committed, no matter how big or how small. So on that first day of questioning in 2010, Arellata did not hold back. And then he said, just matter-of-factly, and I know where a body's buried. That's Thomas Murphy, the Massachusetts state police officer. He was in the room that day. I was like, please be Gary Westerman. Gary Westerman was a low-level drug dealer. He also was a police informant. In 2003, about three weeks before Al Bruno was murdered, Westerman just disappeared. It was nothing more than a missing person. He just turned up missing, but we suspected the guy was dead and he'd been murdered. But there was no body. And if Arellata could point us to a body, the best possible kind of evidence, our case was about to get a whole lot bigger. Which explains Murphy's reaction. Because there's something you should understand. When someone in law enforcement like Tom Murphy hears about a murder like this, he doesn't respond like an ordinary person. Neither do I. For us, there's no disgust. Our stomachs don't turn. We actually get excited. Not excited about the murder, but about what the murder means for our case. It means we can expand the conspiracy and bring the heaviest of charges. In this case, it meant one more shot at taking down the boss of the Genovese crime family and the whole Springfield crew. From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Up Against the Mob, the Springfield Crew. I'm Ellie Honig, a former organized crime prosecutor for the Southern District of New York. Episode 5, Let's Kill Gary Tonight. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Property Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a PropG Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the PropG Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. What happened to Gary Westerman? It's a question investigators had been asking for nearly seven years. And now, finally, Arellata would give us an answer. 
Turns out he and Westerman had a lot of history. We met one time at uh, Antonio's Grinders down the South End. That's the first time I met him. Gary was always uh, around organized crime guys. He was a drug dealer. And he was kind of like a, a con man type. In the beginning, they got along. He was a friendly guy. He had a good personality. He had, you know, like a charm to him. And so we ended up, you know, becoming friends. But eventually, their friendship took a turn for the worse. Around the beginning of 2002, Westerman started dating the sister of Aralata's wife at the time. And she was only like 19 or 20. He was 49, and she was on drugs. She was bad on drugs back then. And he ended up, uh, you know, having a relationship with her. And it caused a big uproar in my ex-wife's family. Did the, your wife's mom or dad ever discuss oh, it with you? Yeah, they, I, they tortured me over this. The family had good reason to be concerned. The guy was a drug dealer. And he's given her drugs. So they want this guy not with their daughter, number one, and number two, they want her off drugs. So they want me to go have a talk with them. So Aralata asked Gary Westerman to stop dating his wife's sister. And surprisingly, Westerman didn't argue. He agreed to stop. That's what he told me. And that's what I told the mother and the father and the family. But then, as time went on, they were sneaking around with each other, and he was still involved with her. And when the family learned about that sneaking around, they were furious. Now the family is coming up to me more aggressively. This guy's got no respect for you. I thought you said you talked to him. Why is this guy still going with our daughter? He's giving her drugs. For Aralata, it was too much. I got sick of hearing him, and I got sick of this whole situation, and I just said, fuck this. Aralata started planning to kill Westerman. But then something happened. Aralata's wife's sister and Westerman took their relationship to the next level. They got married, and Aralata's wife's parents stopped complaining about their new son-in-law. Next thing you know, everything was like, it was okay now. So things calmed down. Until Aralata learned something about Westerman that was not okay. In early November 2003, the Gius brothers, Freddie and Ty, discovered that Westerman was an informant for the Massachusetts State Police. So we just made a plan that said, let's kill Gary tonight. And that's how it happened. Let's kill Gary. And just like that, they began planning the murder. Their first order of business was to pick a location. And Aralata knew the perfect spot, a friend's house in the next town over. That location was the best location there was. You couldn't see it from the street. And next to it was an abandoned house that nobody, it was just abandoned. And this house was off the road where once you got in off the road, once you pulled in, nobody could see you. Best of all, there was already a hole in the backyard. Turns out just a few weeks before, Al Bruno was planning to kill somebody else for something unrelated. So he asked Aralata to find a place for that body, and Aralata picked his friend's backyard. So every night from 5 to 11, nobody's there. So I knew we had, you know, a few hours to dig up, and the hole we dug was very deep. Like, it was over eight feet. It was a huge hole. But ultimately, Bruno called off that hit, and that hole in the ground went unused. So now it was available for Gary Westerman. 
All they had to do was find a way to lure him to the property without arousing his suspicion. So the Gius brothers concocted a story. They'd tell Westerman that a drug dealer owned that house, and they planned to break in and steal his drugs. Then they'd offer to let Westerman in on the heist. Of course he'd say yes. Burglary was one of Westerman's specialties. Then finally, when everyone arrived at the house, the Giuses would shoot Westerman, and Arolato would be on standby in case something went wrong. That was the plan. As Arolato laid out the story that day in the proffer room, the next thing he said really caught our attention. He and the Gius brothers recruited another person to help with the murder. One more name we could charge with killing Westerman. And it wasn't just anyone. It was Emilio Fusco. You'll remember he's the mobster Al Bruno casually told the FBI was a made guy, which led to Bruno's murder. Fusco was an Italian immigrant. He got here like in the 90s, like early 90s, and he spoke very bad English. You know, we always used to make fun of him. When we talked about him, we would always talk like he talked, and we'd laugh and laugh and laugh. Fusco was no fan of Aralata. He always hated me. You know, I was a big moneymaker. You know, everyone hates guys that make a lot of money. And Fusco didn't hold back his feelings. He became a piece of shit. You know, he ended up... uh beefing on me all the time. He tried to get me killed at least a half a dozen times. So, as you might guess? I have always hated him, and I remember one time I was down the YMCA, and he made a beef on me, and I remember I punched the uh, the locker, and I said, one day I'm going to kill this fucking greaseball. I'm going to kill this fuck. But anyways, I hated him. But as Arolata became closer with Artie Nigro, the boss in New York, Fusco must have sensed that Arolata was gaining power. He may not have respected Aralata, but he seemed to respect power. He was just kissing, you know, sucking up to me and just showing me all kinds of respect and just going to dinner, paying for the check and just really smoothing me over like beyond. So it was kind of like I was not forgiving him, but I didn't hate him no more. And so when they decided to kill Gary Westerman, Arolata used that as an opportunity to test Fusco's newfound respect. So we wanted to have him there because he was proving that he was loyal with us. Later that day, Arolata went to see Fusco, who was having dinner with his girlfriend at a restaurant. He came off the table, met me. We had a cognac, and I said, hey, we're going to clip uh, Westerman tonight. You want to go? And he said, yeah. He goes, when? I go, Right now, tonight. He finished up with the girl there. I, you know, we had a cognac. And then we, uh, he jumped up and we left. Arolata says he and Fusco drove over to the house with the eight-foot hole in the backyard. They went to the garage, grabbed two shovels, and hid. After about 30 minutes, Westerman and the Gius brothers arrived in an SUV. We see the lights on, we see it pulling in, and I go, you know, we knew they were here. We ducked down because of the windows. You know, we don't want him to see anybody in the windows. And there was a door right where we were. We were crouched down with the shovels there, and we hear the truck pull in, and we hear the doors open, we hear the doors shut, and then we hear footsteps. And then you hear Gary saying, ow, ow, like, ow, ow, like that. Ow, ow is a bit understated for what was happening. Tygius shot Westerman in the head with a 22 caliber handgun, but the shots didn't kill him. 
turns out, the gun had a faulty silencer that slowed down the bullets. So instead of piercing Westerman's skull, they just bounced off his head. Once we heard that, we knew stuff was going on. So we just came out of the, uh, the doorway of the garage. Once Aralata and Fusco were outside, they saw Westerman and the Gius brothers wrestling on the ground. Aralata says Fusco sprang to action. Right away, he picked up the shovel very hard and bang, put it over his Gary's head. And I started to do the same thing. And pretty much um, that's what we did. We hit him with the shovel. How many times did you hit Gary Westerman over the head with the shovel? A few. He got hit a lot. Once Westerman was unconscious, they dragged his body to the eight-foot hole in the backyard. So I told Freddie to shoot him because Freddie had a gun also. And uh, I told Freddie to shoot him, make sure he's dead. Freddie Gius pulled out his gun and shot Westerman in the head. This time, the bullet didn't bounce. Gary had a Rolex on. Freddie took the Rolex off. We uh, took the phone and broke the phone, Gary's phone. And I believe we threw it in the hole. Then Ty dragged Gary in by the feet and kind of like just dragged him right into the hole. Then they filled the hole with dirt and covered it with leaves. Finally, they got ready to head home. So we all end up uh, putting the shovels in the back of the SUV they came in. And we jump in the uh, SUV and we, uh, we leave. We leave there. Everything was done. What is the conversation like in the car immediately after you all have committed this murder together? It was just like you could tell there was like a lot of energy in the air, but nothing was being really uh, talked. I don't remember any of us talking. Westerman's killers agreed they'd never speak about the murder. But just days later, while they were driving by the house where Westerman was buried, Freddie Gias decided to sing a song. I had a white Cadillac at the time. Ty was in the back. Freddie was in his driver's seat. And we knew never to talk about nothing in my car, especially my car. But their cars, too, now that they're, you know, they're hot. Everyone knows they were the last ones to see Gary. And Freddie starts singing when we're driving by the house. And Freddie started singing on top of old Smokey, all covered with blood. And I'm not one of them paranoid guys or whatever, but I'm like, I'm shaking my head. I, I don't know, I remember turning up the music, but I looked in the rearview mirror and even Ty's like shaking his head, putting his hand up, like going, what the fuck is he doing? Gary Westerman's murder is one of the most gruesome stories I've ever heard. But like I said before, prosecutors didn't focus on the details because they're lurid. Our job was to use them to advance our case. When we heard about the bullets bouncing off Westerman's head, we thought, are those bullets still in the yard? When Aralata said they bludgeoned Westerman with shovels, we thought, would an autopsy back that up? When Aralata told us they buried the body, we thought, we need to dig it up. So we used a little-known legal procedure called a takeout order to pull Aralata out of prison and take him on a macabre field trip of sorts. The plan was for the FBI to drive Aralata up to Massachusetts and ask him to locate the hole. There was a lot riding on this for Aralata. One lie and he'd risk losing his cooperation agreement and spending the rest of his life in prison. And we'd lose our star cooperator. But if he was telling the truth, 
we would have the ultimate form of what prosecutors call corroboration, independent evidence that backs up the cooperator's testimony. Take it from me. Prosecutors are obsessed with finding corroboration for their cooperating witnesses. And there's no more powerful corroboration than an actual dead body. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. I've dealt with many murder cases, but what happened in April 2010 was unique. None of us, not the prosecutors or the investigators, had ever searched for a buried body before. Everyone was eager to find out what evidence was hidden inside that hole. Searching for Westerman's body was a team effort. The Springfield Police, the Massachusetts State Police, and the FBI were all involved, and they pulled out all the stops. They put up a large tent in the yard that acted as the command center. They brought in multiple lighting arrays so they could work around the clock, and loud generators to power those lights. When the FBI car arrived with Anthony Arrelata, the crime scene was already bustling. There was like, I don't know, 50 cops and state troopers and FBI agents. I mean, it was packed. And with all that law enforcement at the scene, the FBI didn't think Arrelata would try anything. So they let him wear his street clothes and removed his handcuffs. The Massachusetts guy in charge, FBI guy, comes up and he shakes my hand and he says, can you point us out where you think? That FBI guy was Brian Warren. We meet him at this location and bring him to walk the property, lay out the whole events as to how things happened. First, Arrelata showed investigators where Ty Gius shot Westerman in the head and the bullets bounced off. We look on the ground and we start finding bullet casings in the yard. It's like, you got to be kidding me. Seven years later and you didn't clean up after yourselves. Then Arrelata showed them where they beat Westerman with shovels and dragged him to the hole. Thomas Murphy, the state police officer, remembers the search. And I walked back with them into the woods. There was one area that you could see a mild depression. And he's looking at me and he, he just kind of jumped like a little kid, like jumped up and down right in the center of this depressed area I'm talking about. And he goes, this is the one I think you try first. I knew right where it was. I brought him right to the spot. So, you know, we put a couple flag markers and then off he goes, you know, back to New York. Arrelata's job was complete, but the FBI's work was just beginning. First, they brought in a team to test the dirt. They actually utilize a pole. They penetrate the pole, and obviously if the ground has been disturbed at any one time, it distorts the composition of the ground, so therefore the pole will go into the ground easier. 
than an area that had not been disturbed. Even seven years later? Yes. What did that show? That the first spot that they put the pole in, it dropped down extremely easy. And so what happens from there in terms of actually starting to dig into the ground? We actually had an archaeologist with the Commonwealth of Massachusetts present in charge of the dig. Then the team brought in a front-end loader, like you'd see on a construction site, to begin the excavation. Murphy remembers the machine scraping the dirt off the surface an inch or two at a time. There were special sifting boxes. The earth was put through that, and all the sand was sifted just in case there was additional pieces of evidence. After a few hours of scraping and sifting little by little, the front-end loader finally struck something that wasn't dirt. Mr. Westerman's remains were placed in the hole head first. So therefore, the first thing that we came across was his sneakers. He's still wearing it. There was a black or a dark Nike sneaker. At this point, they stopped using the front-end loader, and the archaeologist team took over. They used a more delicate touch. The dig proceeds very, very slowly, even using brushes. And people with trowels and stuff. Slowly, Gary Westerman's remains were unearthed. He was remarkably intact. There was no question you had human remains. You could still see part of his genes. There was other evidence in the hole as well. Gary went there to do a burglary, and in the hole was a ski mask and a taser and tools of the trade for a burglar. And uh, we also recovered that 38 caliber casing. And why was that significant? Because as Anthony had described it, Freddie Gius shot him in the head right before placing him in the hole. One of the defining things we found, of course, is when we get to the, the skull, there's a huge bullet hole. There were other fractures and broken things, very consistent with him being chased down and shot multiple times and beaten, you know, with blunt objects. In total, that dig took four days of working around the clock. I wished I could have been there. But the prosecutors didn't go to Springfield. We're not supposed to visit active crime scenes. If we see something relevant to the case, we might become a witness. We might be asked to testify about what we saw. And if that happened, we'd be disqualified from being on the prosecution team. You can't be a witness and the prosecutor in the same case. So when it came time to dig for Gary Westerman's body, we stayed behind in New York. But even from 140 miles away, I was on the edge of my seat. And so was Mark Lanfer, the lead prosecutor. I don't remember if we were getting emails or calls or texts or what it was, but I remember it was basically, all right, we found bullet shells. We see some cardboard. We see a sneaker. We've got a leg. Bit by bit, as they uncovered the body, we heard about every detail. All of us just looked at each other like, this case is blowing up. What you're always looking for is corroboration that your cooperator is telling the truth. Here, obviously, it was telling the truth that he and people killed Gary Westerman. How else would he have known exactly where it happened? It would have been the easiest thing in the world for Anthony to say, yeah, it was Emilio Fusco and Ty Gius who bashed him over the head with the shovel. Instead, Anthony said, it was Fusco and me. Yeah. And to me, that's an indicator of credibility. Yeah. He was phenomenal in that respect. And his candor and lack of shame was just astounding. He was an open book. He didn't really react or emote in any particular way about it. He just, it is what it was. 
By the end of the dig, our prosecution team was feeling confident. We confirmed that our star cooperating witness, Anthony Arellata, was credible. He knew where the literal body was buried. We had gathered powerful evidence that we couldn't wait to show to a jury. And we added one more charge for the murder of Gary Westerman to the indictments of Emilio Fusco and the Gius brothers. We were pumped. But we weren't the only ones. Then I heard about the Westerman dig, and I thought, oh, this is going to be this big scoop. That's Stephanie Barry, the crime reporter for The Republic and Mass Live. She received a tip that investigators were searching for Westerman's body. So I get the address, and I drive there, and I'm following my GPS to try to find where they are. And so I see what I think is like a narrow street. I go barreling up, and it's a private driveway. And I almost run over one of the other state police investigators. Barry got out of her car and asked why they were digging at that location. She knew they'd taken Arlotta out of prison, but it wasn't yet public information that he was cooperating. But then no one was conceding yet. Yes, it's Arlotta. He flipped. He brought us here. So Barry tried a different approach. Then I asked one of the investigators, I said, how many holes did you dig? And they said, one. And I thought, well, that's a pretty good indicator. They knew where to find Gary Westerman. The next day, Barry published an article about how investigators only had to dig one hole. The news must have caught Emilio Fusco's attention because he bought a one-way ticket to Italy and took off. But the Gius brothers didn't run. Freddie Gius couldn't. He was already in prison for the Al Bruno murder. And Ty Gius stayed put in Springfield. The Gius brothers were close, and they spoke on the phone all the time. One day, a package from Freddie Gius's prison arrived on Mark Lanford's desk. It was filled with CDs of Freddie's phone calls. All those calls get recorded. And the prisoners know this. They know not to say anything. But we always subpoena them just in case because you never I remember getting these and decided, yeah, I'll listen to them. So Lanford popped the CDs in the player and began slogging through the calls. Most of it was boring, useless small talk. How you doing, okay? First you call that BS. I'm doing good. Yeah, right. How's that place, okay? Yeah, it's not bad at all. And then we came to one from while the dig was going on, when Freddie called his brother Ty. Wow, there's so much shit going on over here, and I don't know what's true and what isn't, man. What's going on over there now? There's all kinds of digging going on around this city and looking for something, and someone told me they suspect the ant was involved. Really? Ant, meaning Anthony Arellata. They dug one hole, it said in the newspaper, and they have the bones or remains and forensic analysis is being done. Yeah. You know, and Anthony Arlotta, they keep on saying that he was asking the FBI if he was on site helping them look for things or something. They were asking? No comment. Yeah. The news media kept on asking the FBI, the FBI would say no comment. Okay. Yeah. You know, so I don't know what the fuck's going on. Yeah. I'm just staying off the phone now. I mean, I didn't even get in this conversation with you. Yeah. Well, that's where things are now, so... As it looks now, I mean, my days are short, you know? Yeah. So I'm just enjoying the family. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to act like a fucking animal crybaby, you know? Yeah. And just this tone of despair and recognition was 
unbelievable because there's no way. There's no way they don't know exactly what's going on because they knew exactly what the FBI would find because they'd killed Gary Westerman and put it there. A few months later, we charged Freddie and Ty Gius with the murder of Gary Westerman. I mean, look, people were excited because, again, it just blew our case open. It was a big case, and I put a lot of time into it and pretty quickly realized, you know what, I'm going to need some trial partners. Before the dig, Lanfer was the only prosecutor officially working on the case. But now it was time to beef up the team. And after digging up Westerman's body, it wasn't hard to find volunteers. And that was really the first time when I started thinking to myself, this is as close to the real-life Sopranos as you will ever see in an actual prosecutor's office. That's Dan Goldman. He's now a congressman for New York's 10th District. But back then, he was a prosecutor who I supervised in the organized crime unit. Goldman was good friends with Lanfer. And I was paying close attention to this case, and I basically weaseled my way into getting onto it with Mark and you. And as I recall, you just wanted to get in on this trial. Indeed. Uh, you joined <laughs> Mark and me so that the three of us, Mark Lanfer, you, Ellie Honig, and me, Daniel Goldman, were the trial team. So that was the prosecution team that would take on Artie Nigro, the boss of the Genovese crime family, and the Gius brothers. We had charged two murders of Al Bruno and Gary Westerman, plus one attempted murder of the union guy who they shot nine times in the Bronx, Frank Dadabo. We had cooperating witnesses. We had solid evidence to back them up. But one big question remained. Would our cooperating witnesses keep their composure on the stand or would they break under pressure and sabotage their credibility? Turns out the pressure of testifying against his friends was giving Anthony Arellata second thoughts. I, don't, I can't explain it. It was like it was a sickening feeling. I didn't feel good. I didn't I didn't want to do that. On the next Up Against the Mob. As a prosecutor, you have to convince the jury to believe the testimony of people who are criminals. And that's not always so simple. He struck me as one of the most sinister people I've ever seen on the witness stand. There are some times where I just think that the prosecution gets in bed with the worst human beings alive. I thought that Anthony Arlotta would say anything to get what Anthony Arlotta needed. Nothing mattered to him, so why wouldn't he lie? Now that's a bunch of bullshit. For more wild stories about the Springfield Mafia and the inside scoop on how prosecutors go up against the mob, become a member of Cafe Insider. For a limited time, you can get 40% off on your first year of annual membership. Head to cafe.com slash mob and get access to all exclusive cafe content. That's cafe.com slash mob. Up Against the Mob is a production of Cafe and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Matthew Billy is the senior producer and writer. Adam Waller and Noah Azalai are the producers. Isaac Kestenbaum is our editor. Lissa Soep is our story consultant. This episode was mixed and sound designed by David Tadashur. Original score composed by Nat Wiener. 
Tamara Sepper and Art Chung are the executive producers. I'm Ellie Honig. If you enjoyed this episode, hit follow in your listening app. You can also write a review and let us know what you thought of the show. Thanks for listening. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.